Please turn with me to Genesis 32, verses 22 to 31. And as you're digging through your Bibles and digital devices to find that, I must say that this passage of Scripture is one of those that absolutely proves the truth of the Bible because nobody would ever make this up. Genesis 32, 22-31. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, we made it. How many of you are ready for 2016 to be gone and a new year to start? Yeah, I think a lot of us are really ready for a new start. But putting 2016 in our rearview mirror means that we have a new year ahead of us. And when I was young, we used to talk about making New Year's resolutions, kind of these personal commitments to try and do something differently. Can I get a show of hands? How many of you have made New Year's resolutions? Okay, a few. How many are making the same resolutions that you made last year? We got a few honest people. Yes, thank you. According to the Journal of Clinical Psychology, about half of Americans make resolutions each year. And you can probably guess what are the top things that people make New Year's resolutions about. Losing weight. What else? Quit smoking. smoking. Yep. What else? Exercise more and uh, get my finances in shape. Those are kind of the the big categories that we tend to focus on. And self-improvement, or at least the attempt at it, seems to be a pretty popular American pastime. But for all our good intentions, not many people actually seem to succeed at those resolutions. Research suggests that about 8% of people carry their New Year's commitments all the way through to the next December. Now, for those of you who haven't maybe gotten around to it, I came across a list of uh, some helpful New Year's resolutions that will maybe help you get the New Year off to a good start. Uh, Watch more TV. Uh, There's a good resolution. Stop exercising. Uh, Procrastinate more. Starting tomorrow. Uh, Become superstitious. Stop worrying about the past uh, and instead worry about the future instead. 
There's one we could all do. And never make New Year's resolutions again. There's one that we can live up to. You know, we kind of laugh at those because they're silly, obviously. Uh, we'd love for change to be as easy as that. You know, the, the things that just sort of come naturally to us or that we want to hear. Honey, I really want you to stop doing so many projects and work around the house, right? Dear, I want you to stop making dinner every night. I'm just, I'm tired of you doing that. If you've ever made serious efforts to try and change yourself, to try and improve, to try and do something different, you know how hard it is, how hard it can be to really make change that lasts. And part of it, I think, is because those resolutions often are sort of a top-down attempt to change. It's really, you know, sort of from the outside in. And what we really want at some level, yeah, is that easy solution. But what we really need is lasting change, a change in us that results in changed behavior. And the good news is this, you don't have to stay the same, not in the ways that matter most, because Jesus has come to change us into the people that we were created to be and that deep down we really want to be. And so we want to learn how to be the kind of people that don't just, you know, grit our teeth and try harder at redoubling our efforts to do better. We want to learn how to be the kind of people who are different from the inside. People who don't just make resolutions, but, but people who could actually live with a kind of power and motivation to be different. And that's the kind of change that we're interested in and that we're going to see, I think, in this passage in Genesis 32 today. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 32 or, again, pull that up on your phone or whatever device you use. We're looking at this life-changing experience in this man named Jacob. He's the namesake of the nation of Israel and the father of its 12 tribes. Excuse me. And this passage in Genesis 32 is a pivotal moment in Jacob's life that I think in a lot of ways really illustrates the process that God takes us through when he really does a deep change, a deep work in our lives. And so we're going to look at some steps to lasting change in Jacob's life that I think will apply to us. And the first is this. It's one that I think we're all familiar with. It's crisis. Crisis. Our biggest battle in life is not really physical, it's not emotional, it's not relational, it's not financial. Our biggest struggle in life is ultimately spiritual. And it centers around one thing, control. Who's going to be in charge? When push comes to shove, am I going to trust me most or do I trust God most? And I know that, you know, the kind of Christian answer yeah, when life is going easy, we can say, I trust God, because everything's going great, right? But then when life blows up, when our plans fall apart, that's when the rubber really meets the road. And that's when we really have to try and figure out, who am I really trusting? Because when life is smooth sailing, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I love God, I trust Him, He's in control, I believe in Him. But then when the stakes are high, when there's something really at risk that we care about and we're scared, who gets to make the final call? Who's really going to have the last say? Well, let's look in Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. Jacob arose and took his two wives and his female servants and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok 
And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob is left alone. Now, let's stop there for just a little bit of a background. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. If you know much of the Bible story, God appears to this man, Abraham, and he calls him to follow him and believe in him. And he makes him promises that he's going to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and he's going to give him this land in the Middle East. And, and he and Sarah have one kid, Isaac. And then that Isaac marries Rebekah, and then they have two boys, and they're still wandering all over the Middle East. So no land and two kids... Jacob and Esau. And what happens is, 20 years before this story starts, Jacob has taken advantage of Esau's momentary weakness and, and tricked him into selling him his birthright. And not long after that, he tricks their father, Isaac, into giving the blessing that should have gone to Esau to Jacob. So in, in kind of two masterful strokes of manipulation, Jacob steals the material inheritance and the spiritual inheritance that should have gone to Esau. This is God's people, right? These are the people that are going to be the blessing to the world. So Esau is outraged. And anyone who's ever had an annoying little brother or sister knows that feeling. He's just, you wait. And any of you like me who have really angered an older brother or sister, you know that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. So Jacob runs, he heads out of Dodge, and he goes to his uncle Laban, and he works for Laban for 20 years. He marries two of his daughters, and through them and, and two of, of their female servants, Jacob has fathered 11 sons, and the family dynamics alone are a mess, if you read through the earlier chapters of Genesis. But that's not the crisis that Jacob is in right now. Jacob has burned his bridges with Laban, and he's on the run, but he's heading right towards Esau. Now, God tells us things like, you know, I will be with you, and you can trust me. And, and we say, you know, we believe those things, but does anyone else have a hard time trusting God when life sort of falls apart and blows up in your face? I mean, God's promises sometimes really don't seem as real as an angry brother that's right in front of us. And, and that's where Jacob is wrestling. That's his struggle. So he sends messengers to go flatter Esau, you know, kind of try and butter him up and, and feel him out. How are things? And the messengers come back and say, uh, Esau is heading your way with 400 men. So that's not good news. So Jacob comes up with another plan. He sends a bunch of flocks and herds, gifts, like, you know, I'll, I'll buy him off maybe. He sends those over. And then he sends his wives and the servants and his 11 children over the river in front of him. They are basically human shields to protect Jacob. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Jacob is working the angles again to try and protect himself, to try and get things to turn out the right way. But there's one person you can never manipulate, and he's going to show up in just a minute. God loves us so much that sometimes he will let things get to a point that is a crisis that we can't fix. The crisis is an overwhelming situation that's beyond your control. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. And when we're in a crisis, the natural thing to do is to look for the quickest, easiest way out. I want to get out of the crisis. I, I, I want the crisis resolved now. And I'm desperate to find some solution. Are you in a crisis? 
Maybe you're desperate to, to find a fix. And the easiest thing to do is to always look at what has worked in your life up to that point. And that's what Jacob is doing, right? But instead of reacting, a crisis becomes an opportunity for reflection and reassessment. Look in verse 24. So this man shows up and wrestled with him until the breaking of day. I think the second phase of change that we see going on here is confrontation. Jacob has been running his whole life, but now there is literally nowhere to run. He's got an angry uncle behind him and a murderous brother in front of him, and then this man shows up to hold him in place and not let him go. And and he's trying to figure a way out when this stranger shows up, who we find out later is God. God takes on human form and shows up to wrestle with Jacob. I mean, this is amazing, right? This does not happen every day. What is God doing here? Well, let me ask you, what's the point of a wrestling match? What's the goal of a wrestling match? It's to get the other person to submit, right? It's to get them to surrender, to to cry uncle. And Jacob is a fighter. He has never given up to anyone. Jacob does not surrender, not even God. Why should I give you control of my life, God? I mean, it's been working pretty far, pretty well so far, right? So they wrestle all night. Look at this statement in verse 25. The man saw that he could not or did not prevail against Jacob. Now, that's kind of an amazing statement in itself, right? God cannot overpower Jacob? I think the way that we're meant to take this is that God chooses not to overpower Jacob. I mean, unless Jacob gives up willingly, it's a conquest, not a surrender. And and God is not interested in conquering Jacob. He's not interested in conquering us. See, God could literally force us to do his will, right? I mean, he's God but he did not make us to be robots. You want your kids to say, I love you. You want that special person in your life to say, I love you. And, you know, if you worked at it, you could probably figure a way to make them say it with threats or bribes or some way to get the words out. But that's ultimately a hollow victory, right? That's not what we want. We want our kids to say, I love you, because they actually mean it, because it's coming from the heart. And and you and I were created to know and worship and love and trust God. God is after our hearts. That's what's going on here with Jacob. So what are those things that, that you are wrestling with? Maybe there are hurts or circumstances or, or struggles in your life and Maybe there are things that you know you need to change, that that God has been prompting you to change, and he's spoken to you, and, and yet we're still wrestling with God over it. Because maybe sometimes we're focused like Jacob on trying to change the circumstances instead of inviting God to change us in the middle of the circumstances. And that's where a lot of our wrestling with God comes from. God, if only you would change those people. If only you would change these circumstances. Everything would be great, right? You know what you need to do, you you know the right thing to do, but you're having a hard time doing it, and and you're in some kind of a crisis. Maybe it's been building for 
for months or years. And, and God's been whispering, follow me, trust me, believe in me, listen to me. And if we don't listen, what starts out as a small thing builds and builds and builds until it develops in a huge mess, a disaster in our relationships or our finances or our health or our families. And God graciously, lovingly comes to confront us in the middle of it. Maybe it's, maybe it's friends that have been trying to confront you with it. People who love you and have been trying to say, hey, listen, I, I think there's a problem here. I think there's an issue. I think there's something that's not right. And amazingly, God allows us to wrestle with him. For a time, anyway. Look at verse 25. The man touched Jacob's hip socket so that his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. One little touch. God God obviously can overpower Jacob. And he lets Jacob wrestle with him until the point where he just says, okay, okay. This is not working. Jacob, you need, you need to stop and you need to listen. You need to understand. And God does this not because he's on some power trip. He's trying to bring Jacob to the end of himself and the end of his own strength and resources because usually it's only when we get desperate that we're willing to change. Somebody has said, we don't change when we see the light. We usually change when we feel the heat. We change when we feel the heat. And God wants Jacob to feel the heat here. And that's his grace. That's his love to us. If you're feeling the heat and the pressure, if, if you have been confronted with your own weakness, your own inability to change, you're flat on your back, you have no strength, you have nowhere to go, you can't fix it, that is a good place to be ultimately. Look at what happens in verse 26. The man says, let me go. For the day has broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Don't don't you love Jacob? I mean, he's crippled and he has no strength left, but he won't give up. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? I mean, that's the picture here. But I think there's something going on here now. This is a different kind of tenacity. Jacob has, has moved from wrestling. Now he is clinging. He's clinging to this man, to the, to the hope of what this could do. Look, all Jacob wants is to be blessed. I mean, that's what he says, right? I'm not giving up until you bless me. And God does not fault Jacob. He doesn't fault us for that. The problem with Jacob, the problem I think with us sometimes, is the way that he's defined blessing. It's been about wealth and control and success and power, and security. Jacob wants it all, and he wants to take it from you, and he wants to always have it. Because the second problem Jacob has, and I think that we have, is the way we derive blessing too. Jacob has spent his whole life grasping and scheming and manipulating and plotting to get what he wants. And that's kind of the way we can be too, right? You know, God, if I tell the truth about this thing, it's going to be like I'm losing. I'm surrendering. If I honor you in my giving, I don't know that I'm going to have enough. If I really work the way you want me to at work, I'll never get promoted. If I forgive those people, they're just going to get away with it. 
If I trust you in that thing, I know you're going to call me to do something I don't want to do. What are you clinging to? What are you clinging to that, that is shaping your life, that is shaping your goals and, and your priorities and, and your way of dealing with life? In our old house in St. Louis, there was this uh, bulging, ugly concrete patch in the basement uh, where that, you know, that big metal support beam hits the foundation wall. And I was perfectly fine with it. I mean, it was down in the basement. It was behind some shelves. I didn't bother it. It didn't bother me. And then we went to sell our house. And we're looking at everything, you know, that the potential seller could find wrong. Like, I know somebody's going to look at that and they're going to say, aha, there's probably foundation problems. Let's call in some experts. And I could just see the dollar signs adding up, right? So I'm like, okay, I got to fix this. I pull the shelves away. I dig out the concrete patch. And the structural support beam sits in this little pocket in the foundation wall. At least it's supposed to. It, it didn't quite. And so the builders had just sort of filled all that in with some leftover construction debris. The west side of our house was resting on a ceramic tile, essentially. But it looked fine from the outside. Hey, it had worked for 50 years. What's the problem, right? But there was a significant problem underneath the surface that the patch job seemed to be doing a good job of covering up. And sometimes we patch over problems in our lives with you know, maybe stories that we like to believe about ourselves, a narrative about what's wrong with all those other people, or, or schemes and plans, ways that we've come up to, you know, kind of manipulate things and, and get our way out of problems. And, hey, it seems to be working, right? And, and so in a crisis, when we're confronted, we may tend to cling to that thing. I'm going to run back to what has always worked for me before. But we don't deal with the problem. See, I will always pursue whatever my heart loves and whatever I am motivated by. I will always spend time and money on what my real priorities are. And a crisis often highlights what I really love and what I'm really clinging to. And instead of clinging to our coping strategies, God is inviting us to cling to him, to make him our hope and our joy and our confidence and our trust, especially when things are not going the way that we want. Because that's where Jacob is driven to at this point, finally. He's saying, God, I want to cling to you. I want, I'm asking you, help me to trust you, that you know what I need and you can give me what is best for me. But God's not done with Jacob yet. There are a few more important things that need to happen. Look at verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, names are important in the Bible. When, when you're doing Bible study, the one thing I want to encourage you, sometimes can be really helpful to dig into, you know, like looking up what is the meaning of this name. Because in the Bible, they are often descriptions of people. And Jacob is named for the first act that he performed in life. It literally means heel grabber. He's born, coming out of the womb, grabbing onto Esau's heel. He's wrestling with him already. 
And it essentially means a deceiver, a schemer. It's someone who will trip you up to get ahead. And in honesty and humility, he says, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheater. That's me. If we had to name our characters, what would they be? Thankless, lustful, greedy, impatient, demanding, jealous, cynical, worrier. Man, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. But real change comes through confession. That's what God is pulling Jacob towards here. Unless we are honest with God about what's really going on inside of ourselves, we're not going to change. And we won't have much use for Jesus either. I mean, what do I need grace for? I'm not that bad of a person, right? It's exactly what Jesus is getting at. He says, look, I, it's not sick people. It's not healthy people who need a doctor. It's sick people. I haven't come to call righteous people. I've come to call sinners to repentance. See, that's, that's good news ultimately. But it's hard. Because if I don't see myself as someone who is deeply sinful and desperately broken, I'm not really going to be motivated to change and I'm not going to see that I really need Jesus. And, and grace is not really amazing. What do you need to be honest with God about? What do you need to admit to God, to yourself, maybe to someone else that you can trust? A couple had been married for just a few months and everything had been going fine except they had a couple of issues. The husband really struggled with a bad foot odor and he decided he was going to hide the problem by always wearing socks to bed. The wife, on the other hand, had really terrible morning breath. And she figured out, you know, I can't let my husband know this. I'm just, I'll always run to the bathroom and brush my teeth before I say anything to him in the morning. And everything goes great until one morning the husband wakes up and realizes one of his socks is missing. And so he starts frantically fumbling around at the bottom of the bed. And all this movement wakes up his wife who turns to him and says, what's going on? Are you okay? And he says, yeah, but I think you ate one of my socks. Things have a way of catching up with us. You know, we can, we can maybe fool our spouses, our kids, our employers, our friends for a while. Maybe. But we will definitely not fool God. Let's be honest with him. Let's be honest with him about what's really going on inside of ourselves. And, and with people who love us and can help us. That's part of the reason that we encourage people to get connected in connection classes and community groups. Because we cannot do this alone. We're not made to do it alone. And we need safe, humble, grace-filled people that, that we can be honest and share our burdens with and, and encourage and hold each other accountable. I need that. You need that. We need a place where we can confess to one another what's really going on. And the great part is that a person who has no secrets has nothing to fear. It doesn't feel that way. But it really is true because confession brings freedom. It sets us free from, from all the fears and, and then trying to perform. And, and it, 
brings about God's response of loving kindness. I mean, think about what Jesus is inviting us to. If, you, if you're tired of performing, if you're tired of pretending, Jesus says, come to me and find life. Take my yoke on you and find rest for your soul. What do you need to confess to God? What do you need to ask other people to help you with? Because confession is what brings change. And look at the response in verse 28. So the man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Something changes in Jacob. This is what we could call conversion. There is a literal change in Jacob here. And whether you can point to a specific moment in your life where you were dramatically converted from, from not following Christ to following Christ and not loving God to loving God, for every person who follows Jesus, there is an ongoing, lifelong process of character transformation. We come to God in, in confession and, and faith and, and repentance and we cling to Jesus because we see him as a loving, forgiving, life-giving Savior. And then we spend the rest of our lives learning to trust and follow him. And that happens as we live out who we are in Christ. See, Jacob means deceiver, and Israel means he strives, or it can also mean prince with God. Now, which of those descriptions for yourself would you like, right? Yeah, I want to be prince with God. And, you know, we'd love to have a message that said, hey, Jacob went from deceiver to prince, and so can you. And, and there's truth to that, sure. But both of those meanings are true of Jacob and of us. I mean, I think that's more encouraging because it's real. And, and if you go forward in Genesis 33 and 34 and 35, you'll see, yeah, Jacob has changed, but he is still striving and he is still struggling and he is still stumbling to trust God. And if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a prince. You are a princess because you are a child of the king. You have a new identity a new nature, but we still struggle against that old nature, don't we? We are stumbling, striving princes and princesses. And God's work will not be finished in us until we see Jesus face to face. But we do have God's word and, and the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us to help us live out what Jesus has declared us to be. I can identify with the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's where most of us live, isn't it? We are striving and stumbling, but, but the good news is that God is just as committed to changing us as he was to changing Jacob. You don't have to stay the same, because if you are in Christ, you are not the same. You're Life is not about what you have or what you have done or what you have failed to do. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your identity that God now helps us live out. Look at this last section in verse 29. So Jacob asked the man, please tell me your name. 
But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. She loved Jacob. I just, I want to know a little bit more. I want to know a little bit more about this, about this person that I've been wrestling. A little more knowledge would be great. But God answers this request with kind of a, a gentle rebuke. G, Jacob is looking for clarity. Just, just give me some more information, and then I'll know whether or not I can really trust you and follow you. And God is basically saying, look, you don't need more information, Jacob. You just need to act on what you already know. God is not saying, look, don't, don't seek more knowledge. That's, that's not the message here. I mean, he wants us to grow in the truth. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds according to the truth of God's word, right? But think about how many sermons you've heard, how many podcasts you've listened to, how many books you've read, how many conferences you've gone to, how many Bible studies you've been in, and how many of us still struggle to live out the things we already know to be true. I mean, that's part of what God is saying to Jacob here. Don't just file away what you've heard, and don't just go looking for some new thing to learn when you already have more than enough to work on from what you've already heard. Clarity and blessing come through obeying. And that, that's kind of what God is saying to Jacob here. He does bless him, but he doesn't send him off to go say, well, you need to you know, learn a lot more. Practice what you already know. Trust me in what I've already shown you, and you'll be blessed, Jacob. You know, I've been fascinated by uh, an explosion of studies over the last number of years and kind of neuroscience that in a lot of ways affirms what the Bible is already kind of telling us about why we make resolutions and what helps us keep them. And one of the things that I want to try and do is we think about, okay, so how would I gain clarity in following God for what I already know and we're starting a new year is let's just stop making New Year's resolutions. Let's at least stop making bad resolutions and let's figure out how can we make ones that can actually help us. So here's just some practical applications. First of all, make them simple. Make it simple, right? You know, sometimes New Year's comes or, or we suddenly start seeing all the problems in our lives and we're like, okay, I need to fix my finances and I got to deal with this relationship and I got job issues and I, I got to get my weight under control and I got to stop smoking. And, I, you know, we shoot for the moon and we end up not getting off the launching pad. Because we've got way too many things that we're trying to do at once. Set small, attainable goals. Because what matters more than achieving the goal is making progress in a meaningful way. So, so keep it simple and make it tangible. If you're going to really ask God to help you change, a resolution, you know, for example, to lose weight is not all that easy to follow. So make it tangible. Okay, for the next six weeks, I'm not going to eat potato chips and ice cream and french fries. Be specific. You know, don't say, well, you know, I really need to start working out. How about instead we say, okay, in the coming weeks, five days a week, I'm going to get up a half an hour early and do 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. Make it tangible. If you can't measure it, it's, it's not a very good plan. And make it obvious. You know, one of the things that can help, at least for me, I tend to be a visual learner. I, I need to see uh, the progress. I need to see what the goal is. So whether it's a, a to-do list or a progress chart or a diary or something, making it obvious in front of you is helpful and share it with someone else. Again, that's why God 
puts us in community because we need other people who can see what we're trying to do and help encourage us and hold us accountable. There was a woman named Anna Newell Jones who who had run up uh, something like $23,000 in credit card debt. And so she actually started an online blog to publicly track her progress from spendthrift to saver. And so she made this intentionally public to the whole internet. And over the course of about a year and a half, she finally was able to get that debt down. And and part of it was the accountability of all these people who were there with her, encouraging her, and not letting her forget about it. Share those resolutions with people who can encourage you and help hold you accountable. And then finally, make it prayerful. I think maybe this is part of the problem too. You know, we sort of say, okay, I really need to work at this and and I've got to make this happen. And and few of us make dramatic life changes because of either, you know, just a personal commitment or maybe some dramatic New Year's resolution. I mean, I'm not a prophet, but I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying God is probably not going to show up in any of our lives and wrestle us until daybreak in order to have this kind of transformation in our lives, right? That's really unusual. And transformation happens much more commonly in the thousands of little moments that happen every single day. That's where we live, right? And God is orchestrating those events to take us beyond our strength and beyond our resources to make us more dependent on him. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But whoever remains in me will bear much fruit. And God pulls us beyond our abilities to come to him for the strength and the wisdom and the hope and the power that only he gives us. So you're going to hit bumps in the road as you try to change. You're going to stumble. You're going to get knocked off your stride. But that's not the same thing as failing. So we need to be intentionally prayerful to recognize I need God's help daily in everything I'm trying to do. I need the strength of Christ to stay on track and to not give up when I miss the mark. To stay dependent on God throughout the day for the things that I'm asking him to help me change and to give me the grace to keep going forward. See what that looks like in Jacob's life. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face. I've wrestled with, this is God I've been wrestling with, and yet I lived. The sun rose on him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. (laughs) There's this new day, literally, that's dawning in the life of a man who was Jacob and is now Israel. And he's physically weaker, but spiritually stronger because of this confrontation and this crisis and confession and clinging to God. He's less dependent on himself and more dependent on God's grace. Can you relate to this at all? Maybe there's a crisis in your life. Maybe it's not quite a crisis, but but there's some things that are there. You're being confronted with. Something you need to confess. Are you willing to take an honest look? And talk to God humbly in order to let him bring a real conversion, a real change in your life. Until we moved to Indianapolis, I'd spent the last 17 years living 
at the most, five minutes from church. I, I didn't drive a lot, uh, you know, all over St. Louis. I just, you know, I tended to have limited travel. And now I've moved to uh, Indianapolis. I'm about 10, 11 minutes from church, but I, I find myself also driving a lot more to go to meetings, to go to people's homes, to, to drive downtown. And, you know, I always told myself I'm, I'm pretty much a patient driver. <laughs> And now I'm driving more. And I find myself getting stressed and impatient and, and I'm muttering under my breath. And, and I'm thinking, what is this about? I, I'm, I'm generally a pretty patient person. You know, I could have asked my wife in the first place. I mean, they always know, right? Our spouses always know. No, I finally, I finally am confronted with the fact that I'm not as patient as I thought. Because now I'm in a situation where I'm tempted to be impatient. I'd been clinging to this vision of myself as a patient person. And, and really it was based on the fact that I didn't have to drive that much, so I didn't have to deal with it. And, and now the, the ugly concrete patch has been ripped off, and I can see that I've been propping up that vision of myself with things that aren't really true. And I've had to confess that impatience to God. And, and now I guess I'm confessing it to you. So you guys can help hold me accountable. My goal is simple. I want to reflect more of God's character literally in how I drive. That as I am out on the roads, I could demonstrate more patience, more consideration for others, more kindness, actually be willing to let people merge in ahead of me, and that I would be intentional, as I start to feel stressed or impatient, that I would pray for the people who are driving another, I mean, pray positively for the, for the other people in those cars, right? And you all can help hold me accountable and ask me how I'm doing with that. Maybe you wonder whether you can really change. Am I stuck? Am, am, am I just this way? It's never too late. It's never too late. You don't have to stay the same. And maybe... Maybe you've never come to a point of really seeing your need for Jesus and your need for forgiveness. And, and it's hard to admit. It's hard to come to a place of saying, I can't do it. I don't have it all together. I am I'm sinful. And I can't save myself. But I turn to Jesus and I, and I cling to him because he is forgiving and he can save me. And I want to give my life to him and put him in charge. If you've never come to the point of saying that, don't leave here today without getting that settled with God. Because Jesus is here to save you, to make you new, to give you new hope and new power and new life. But that's also the process that all of us need as well. God wants to change all of us from the inside out. And it has to start somewhere. So let it start today. You don't have to be the same. Let's pray and ask God to help us change. God, thank you that you know everything about us and in knowing everything about us, you love us. You come to forgive us and help us and graciously you come to break our strength and sometimes even lead us into crises so that we'll have to be confronted with what we've been clinging to and, and 
maybe our coping strategies and things we've wanted to believe about ourselves. Oh God, God, thank you for that mercy. Would you help us today, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, help us again to come to you, to be honest with who we are and and what we've been holding on to. And God, help us to cling to you. Help us to look to you for our hope and our trust and the power to change and the things that need to change in us. That we could be different. That we could reflect more of what you are like and that people would see more of Jesus in us. Thank you, God. Thank you for the hope and the promise of the way you work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.